we're, we're talking about something today that is so important to me, that's so close to my heart, that I, I, I have a hard time thinking there's anything else. It's almost like, a, you know, if you, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of thing. And I, I just see uh, our identity in Christ as such a crucial teaching. But one of the problems that we've had is, I think, in the past is we've substituted some pop psychology and maybe some Christian feel-goodism rather than just anchoring our identity in Christ and the great doctrines of our faith. And so during this series, we're talking about four great teachings, doctrines of Scripture, that will root our identity in Christ. Now, you have notes. I hope you have a worship folder, and if so, you'll see some of the, the things here that, uh, that I'll be going through, and I'd like for you to, you know, just, just keep up with this stuff if you can. Uh, <clears throat> like Rob prayed there, we, maybe the head will not be able to apprehend or, or, or get, get it all. That's okay. The Holy Spirit will make real to all of us. And this really is known by revelation. You've, you've come to understand how God thinks about you, how he feels about you, his posture toward you, and his relationship to you. So there's nothing, in my opinion, more important than our identity in Christ. And that must be rooted in the great teachings of Scripture. Now, there's a verse in John 12, verses 42 and 43, I'd like to read. It explains the motivation of a Pharisee of a scribe. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, the question is, do you love the approval and the approbation the accolades, do you enjoy the glory and the praise of men more than you enjoy the praise and glory of God? A part of it is we do not understand how God is boasting in us right now. As a trophy of God's grace, he is glorying in us because we're the objects of his grace. That's what got Job into trouble. God was bragging on Job. Tell Satan, have you even considered my servant Job? There's not another like him. He's righteous. He hates evil. He loves righteousness. And Satan said, will a man serve God for naught? You take the blessings away from Job, God, and he'll curse you to, to your face. You see, God said, all right, let's see. And through 42 chapters of Job, with those miserable comforter of friends who really didn't get it, Job demonstrated to God and to the devil that God's boast in him, that God's glory in him, that God's pride of him was accurate. Now, Job had to come to deal with some things and repent in sackcloth and ashes, but mainly it's important, like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, 
human works, lest anyone should boast. We are not to boast. The boasting is God's. He will for all eternity brag about, look what I did with Lori. Look what I did. What an amazing object of grace she is. God delights in us. He he enjoys us, he delights in us, and he brags about us. I think that's very important for for us to see. We were singing that song from 1 John 3, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us and that he has called us children of God, and so we are. We are his children, his sons and his daughters. Now, I want us to throw on this screen, first of all, Satan's big lie, and he has a big one, and that lie is simply this, that our self-worth, our identity, his formula is performance plus other people's opinion produces self-worth. Now, if we look for our significance, if in our quest for significance and our own self-worth and our identity, if we look to our performance and if we look to other people's opinions, then we'll have no foundation whatsoever. We'll be left to the fickle opinion of people that will change just like that or at our own performance, which we can never, ever measure up. We just simply can't get good enough for God to accept us. Now, I'm going to, there's going to be a chart that uh, after the fourth one of these, you'll see all four. And in that chart, you'll see the lie. It's at the top of your second page. And then the consequences of believing that lie. And then the truth. And then the benefits or blessings of believing the truth. The first lie that we've already looked at was the lie of the performance trap. That is, I must perform well to feel good about myself. I must meet up certain standards, and then I can feel good about myself. In other words, it all depends on my performance, how well I do. It's a trap because we can never be good enough. Even if we have this nervous perfectionism about us, that always striving, nothing is ever quite good enough. And I'm talking about not being able to sit back and relax and enjoy an accomplishment. Enjoy a work week. Enjoy something. Because we're driven to perform more and more. It could have been better. This could have happened. And we're deeply discontent. And so, like God, at the end of that six-day work week, he just relaxed and he enjoyed his creation. And he said, it is good. This is very good. And God rested and enjoyed his creation. We can never do that if we're just compulsively having to perform to measure up for God or to measure up, certainly, to other people's opinion. I want you to look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. The performance trap leads us to this fear of failure. We, we just fear failure ultimately. And we'll avoid risk because I don't want to take a chance on anything because I just can't fail again. Feeling like a failure, I, I'll fail again. And we develop a pride. When we do something, we say, wow, look what I did. Because it's performance-based. 
It's my own good works. And we never feel like we quite measure up. Now, God's truth that we looked at last time is justification. Justification is a legal term. It means to declare righteous. That's all it means. It's a judge bringing down his gavel and saying, not guilty. Declare, and more than that, declaring you righteous, just as righteous as his son, Jesus Christ. Justification is a declaration of God's declaring you righteous through your faith in Jesus Christ. When you trust him and put your faith in him, he declares you righteous. In Christ, I'm fully forgiven and completely righteous. I no longer depend on my performance to measure up. We believe the truth of justification, that we're justified by faith, just as if we never sinned in God's eyes. We believe that. We're free, to, we're free from the fear of failure. We're free. Romans chapter, one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But let's move on from justification to reconciliation. Now again, Justification is legal, it's a legal term, it's a legal act, and explains the judicial facts of our forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. We're declared righteous. Those of you who are here today and you're married, you've got a legal marriage license. I hope you do. If not, see me after the service. You have a declaration That you're no longer single, you're married. That's legal. That's a declaration of your married state. But then God doesn't stop at that declaring us righteous. He moves on to reconciliation. Reconciliation is relational, and it explains the relational aspects of our salvation, our relationship with God. And God is into reconciliation. If justification is declare righteous, then reconciliation is restore relationships. God is into restoring relationship. The first relationship that has to be restored is our relationship with God. Now, this relationship is a problem because we are enemies with God. And his wrath burns against us. We've got an offended God. And to be reconciled to him means an enemy has to be made a friend. I have become an enemy of God. That's my posture in rebellion against him. So God, in this two sides of the coin salvation, justification by faith on one side of the coin, and the other side is reconciliation, whereby he brings us into a relationship, a personal relationship of intimacy with him. It's a oneness. It's not just a brain-oriented justification. I've been declared righteous. It's a heart relationship of intimacy with God. We're at one. Atonement means at one We are at We are one with God. We're in Christ and we could not get any closer. 
Reese Howell used to say, so nigh, so very nigh to God, I cannot nearer be. For in the person of his son, I am as near as he. We are so close to God that it's almost an infringement upon the Trinity. We tremble reverently when we say it. There is an intimacy with God that we share through reconciliation. The relationship is restored. The wrath of God no longer burns against me. His anger has been appeased. There's no longer any wrath. And I am the object of his love, of his great grace. The relationship has been forever, eternally restored. All of you know you can have a marriage license, but the marriage may not be that good. You can be declared righteous, but what about the relational aspects of the marriage? Is the husband loving the wife as Christ loved the church? Is the wife honoring the husband as the church honors Christ? Is there respect? Is there love? Is there a real relationship? Is there a true intimacy in this marriage? Is there a real oneness? That's what reconciliation does in a, in, in a marriage. That's what it does in a life. So you can have the, the legal document declared married, or you can have the relationship where you have a restored relationship with your bride, with your husband. And this is what he's talking about with God, that reconciliation. Okay, look at this really important verse uh, passage in Romans chapter 5. Ready? Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there we have that word, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you are justified, declared righteous, you have peace with God. There's no longer any war. But when you move to reconciliation, you have the peace of God that passes all understanding. Peace with God, justification. The peace of God, reconciliation, where there's an intimacy. There is an eternal oneness. Let's go on down. Uh, There's a couple of verses there. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, or we glory, we boast in hope of the glory of God. So that's a cause of rejoicing. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That One day I'm going to be with him in heaven. One day I'm going to be literally, physically in his presence, fully in his presence. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, that we can, we have, we can rejoice in the future, the glory of God that's coming, and we can rejoice in our present troubles right now, all tribulation. We, we are to rejoice in those things because God is at work. Because we are justified, all things are working together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Yesterday, Sherry and I drove to Capistrano, San Juan Capistrano. It's a long story. We had to deliver a car. So she was driving our car, and I was driving this car that was to be delivered to the San Diego family, and they were to meet me in San Diego. I'm not a car salesman on the side. This is a couple. They were going back to Malawi, and they'd been here for a couple of years, and we were friends of theirs. They were in our church, and so we said, yeah, we'll, you, you leave the car with us, uh, take you to the airport, and uh, we'll take the car to the owners in San Diego. Well, we met up at Capistrano at the, sta- at the train station. But as I was driving yesterday, I was listening. If you don't have this Bible.is app, you got to get it. 
And you'll need plenty of data to do this. So, you know, be careful because I haven't always been careful with that data and so I've had to pay through the nose or whatever. But I was listening to Genesis on my way to Capistrano. In particular, the story of Jacob and Joseph. Joseph grew up, you talk about a dysfunctional family. Wow. I mean, Jacob, uh, first of all, there was uh, 11, 12 brothers, ultimately, and there were four mothers involved. I guarantee you, when they would introduce their brother, they would say, same father, but different mother. That's the way they introduce each other in Africa, by the way. In Africans, they'll they'll say, hey, I'd like for you to meet Kojo, Memper, Memer, same mother, same father. That's extremely close. But often, often you'll hear Memper, Mer Différent, which means same father, different mother. They always do that to this very day. Right now, they do that. And this is probably what they did then because there were four women. There was Jacob, there was Leah, there was Rachel, and then the two house helpers that, that gave birth to these 12 boys. Now, show me a more messed up family and I will do something. I don't know. You just, I just can't imagine Joseph growing up in a worse environment. There was jealousy, sibling rivalry galore, and the brothers wanted him dead, thought let's make some money out of him. And so then for just about 20 years, they convinced Jacob, the father of Joseph, his dearly loved one, that uh, he's dead. Wild animal has eaten him. Here's the coat of many colors that you made him. They ripped it all up, put some goat blood on it, and said, a uh, wild animal has is, is, is destroyed your son. And they sell Joseph from the pit. He goes to Potiphar's house. And he works as a servant, as a slave. And of course, he worked hard. And everywhere he went, God was sovereign over his life. But he was diligent. He was just doing the best he could do. He was working hard until he becomes the most trusted man in Potiphar's house. And then Potiphar's wife, the mean woman that she was, accused him of attacking her, morally assaulting her. And and, and so from the pit to Potiphar's house, now to prison. Joseph's in prison. And there he is. And, And you don't hear him one time complaining about his circumstances. In a sense, he's delighting in God. And he's pleasing God. He's serving him. And somehow... I don't think he understands it all, but God is behind the scenes at work because he had a dream when he was a boy that got him in deep trouble with his daddy, his mama, and the brothers, and that is that he would exercise leadership over all of them, the sun and the moon, the stars would all bow down to him and the other grains. You know, the, 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 the dreams that Joseph had as a boy of significant leadership in the kingdom. But now he's in prison, and he interprets a dream, and now he goes to Potiphar's house, and he's second in command of all of Egypt suddenly. Then the family comes, and they're hungry because there's a famine as true to Joseph's interpretation of those dreams, seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine and want. Joseph is restored. He's reconciled to those brothers, but it took quite a, quite a bit. I mean, it was agonizing, but there was a deep reconciliation. But now Jacob dies, and the brothers all fear that 
Now Joseph will get us. Our father's dead. He's gone. Now he's going to pay us back for all, all the horror that we caused him. But then Joseph said this to those brothers, you know, calm yourself. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. While I was driving and listening to that, the phrase, God meant it for good. That's the ESV precise phrase. God meant it for good. And I began to thinking, you know, a lot of of us in our identity, we're so human responsibility oriented that we never get there because we don't understand the great doctrines of grace, that God is sovereign. And if we strive with sovereignty, if we strive with the reality that God is at the blessed controller of all things, we will never say what Joseph said, God meant it for good. Everything in your life, in my life, God meant it, that's past tense, everything up to now. It was like a life-giving phrase to me. Sherry and I talked about it as we drove back home yesterday afternoon. That one phrase brought great encouragement to her. It brought great encouragement to me, given what we've been going through, given what's happening in our lives, given all of these circumstances. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. God meant it for good. Once we know that, we stop striving against the circumstances of our life. I've talked to a, a guy this past few weeks who understands identity. He understands grace, but he doesn't get in his heart this surrender to sovereignty. This He strives with sovereignty that God is in control of these circumstances of our lives. And if we can see that God is the blessed controller of all things, it brings whole new levels of peace. God's peace to our hearts. God meant it for good. And if we will see that, we will stop trying to measure up, stop trying to outperform every other person that is like a competitor around us, and rest in that sovereign purpose of God. You say, well, Rex, explain that to me, and I'll do it. I can't explain that to you. I can't explain the sovereignty of God, how I can be personally responsible before God, how I am accountable for every single one of my choices and decisions before God. I'm even accountable for every thought that comes into my mind. And God is sovereign. Just like from the pit to Potiphar's house, to the prison, to the palace. Joseph, every one of those points, he was diligent, he was responsible, he did what God wanted him to do, but yet God was up here just guiding it all in one man's life to bring glory, to save an entire nation alive and to give a future and a hope to the peoples of the earth. Because God used one man, Joseph, who understood who he was in God, and he did not strive against sovereignty. Now, the benefits of the, 
you know, this approval addict, I must have the approval of others to feel good about myself. We do that, we're going to end up with rejection. We fear it, trying to please people. Uh, we're easily manipulated, can't say no to anything because I've got some, you know, whatever the cost, I've got to please people. We become angry because we can't please people and they're going to hurt us and we'll get, tend to get bitter at the very people we're trying to please and we find out we can't. And we suddenly withdraw from people. We start even getting, getting into isolation because I'm looking to people to make me feel good about myself. The truth of reconciliation is this, in Christ I am totally accepted by God and no longer depend on the approval of other people to feel good about myself. It's God's acceptance. He's totally accepted me in the beloved. And that gives me freedom from fear. Now let's look back at Romans chapter 5, verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare die. But God shows his love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now these verses are so important. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And... and, You know, I'm assuming this is what they were thinking. Okay, I have been justified by faith. Let's say you're a you're eight year old boy, girl, eight year old boy, let's say, and you and your parents move in to the neighborhood. It's your first night in your new house, and there's a fire. You don't know any of the neighbors. You don't know anything, but there's a there's a fire. And the house is burning and you're upstairs in your bed and even your bed is beginning to get engulfed with flames. The house is on fire. You scream, nobody hears you. And there's a neighbor, a Mr. whoever, you don't know. But he sees the fire and he comes in and he rescues your mom and dad downstairs, gets them out to safety. And now the house is really burning, it's on fire. You're, you're, you're scared, you're screaming, you're a little boy, you're up there in your room and, and you're about to die. And suddenly, this Mr. Jackson, we'll call him, the neighbor that you don't even know, goes down and he, he gets a towel and he puts it in a tub and douses it with water and he makes his way through the flames up to your room and he comes into your bedroom And his arms are burning, he's burning all over from the flames. And he takes you and he wraps you in that towel of water. And he carries you downstairs to safety. He's so damaged by by the wounds of the fire, the burns, that he has to go to the hospital and stays for a long time. But as a little boy, you, you remember Mr. Jackson and try to be friends with him and you try to thank him somehow for what he did. But one day, now, months later, you ask your, your dad, your mom, do you think Mr. Jackson would want to come and watch my game? I, do you think he would play catch with me? Do you, I, I, I've got a game coming up. Do you think Mr. Jackson would, would, uh, would play with me? 
play catch with me? And would he come and watch my game? And father would say, Mr. Jackson walked through the fire to save you from certain death. He was burned for you. And the scars are still there for you. Look, if Mr. Jackson would walk through the fire to save you, much more he would play with you. And he'd come to your game. And he'd have an enjoyment of you. That's the reasoning that Paul is using here, I believe. Here he he goes. Look at it again. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We don't have to fear the wrath of God in the future, not in this life nor in the next. Much more we're going to be saved from his wrath, from his anger toward us over sin or disobedience or anything else in our life. Much more. If he'd go through the fire for you, much more, much more would he save you from his wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Again, you reconcile enemies. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, up there, we rejoice in the glory to come in our future prospects. We rejoice in tribulation in our present problems. But now he's saying rejoice in God, a third reason for boasting. Okay, look at that last phrase, we have now received reconciliation. Some translations receive the reconciliation. Reconciliation is a gift to be received, a gift that's been wrapped up, reconciliation. And let's say you get a gift, you receive the gift, you receive the gift of reconciliation. But you leave it tied up, you put it in the attic, it's in a box, it's in a bow, but it's in the attic. Oh, you've received it, but you are not enjoying it. You're not benefiting from it. And then one day, let's say you open that box of the gift of reconciliation and you find that it's God himself. It's God himself. Not something, not some great gadget. The gift of reconciliation is the gift of God himself and you enjoy him and you rejoice in him and you boast in him. We live for the pleasure of God because he is pleased with us. Okay, our identity in Christ will save us from the performance trap and save us from becoming approval addicts. We can, we, we don't have to be intense about performance. We don't have to be intense about getting people's approval. We can be intense about the right thing. And that's serving Jesus Christ. That's loving him. Intensity about the right thing. I've never known anyone used of God that didn't have a certain level 
of intensity about them, about her, about him. But there's intensity about the right things, not the intensity to perform. This nervous behavior of trying to perfectionize my life or to get the approval of other people. But there's intensity about just simply serving Jesus Christ, giving glory to him, pleasing him in all things. And that's the right kind of intensity. There's a, there's a story that I've, I've told. I've actually told this to men for years, but I'm going to tell it in a little different way today. It's called The Legend of Johnny Lingo. Now, Johnny Lingo was a young man, an outstanding Polynesian young man from the South Pacific island of Nurabandi. Now, he was the sharpest, best-looking, strongest, richest, eligible bachelor on that entire island. All the girls would love to marry Johnny Lingo. He was top. But Johnny had set his affection on a girl in a neighboring island by the name of Sarita. Now, interestingly, Johnny himself couldn't even explain why he loved that girl. She was very homely, plain, unattractive, And they made a movie out of this legend of Johnny Lingo. And in the movie, started to show you a clip because it's very funny, but I'll not do that. The father is sitting around with these other men in the village on that island saying, you know, I don't know know how many cows my daughter's worth. Probably zero. Because in those days, the way a young man, the dowry system operated, was that he would give a certain number of cows to the father that would just fetch a bride price, a dowry. If a young man really was serious about marrying a girl, he would approach the father and he would negotiate. And typically the guys would get the lowest number of cows. And the average would, was like two to three. Cows would be the dowry or the bridal price that a guy would... But these guys all would sit around talking in their house, so your daughter won't even fetch a cow. I mean, and the father himself would say that. She was worthless in his eyes. Now, I think the highest in that village that ever been given, highest number of cows was five cows, maybe six in that village. So Johnny Lingo approaches this pr- prospective father, and he says to him, I would like to marry your daughter, Sarita. And then the guy, first of all, he can't believe it. And then he's thinking, okay, how can I get a cow? How can I get a cow? And Johnny says, I would like to give you 10 cows for Sarita. The man can't believe it. Never in the history of that village had anyone ever offered 10 cows for a girl. A 10-cow bride? This is... Too much. But of course, the father says yes. Johnny brings his 10 cows. uh, And he marries Sarita. 
And they go away on a honeymoon and some business dealings in other islands, and they're gone about six months. Then they come back and they set up house in that island, on that island. And people marvel. They can't believe the transformation that's taken place in Sarita. She's beautiful. She's poised. She's confident. She is an amazing woman to the point that the father comes and accusing, accuses Johnny of uh, dealing dishonestly with him because look at this girl and you just gave me ten cows, that's all. She was that magnificent a creature. And Johnny then tells others, I wanted Sarita, I loved Sarita. I loved her so much. I didn't want her to feel like a one cow or a two cow or a three cow woman. I wanted her to feel like a ten cow woman. And she did, and she was transformed. Now, you get the point, right? I mean, I don't even have to go there. On a scale of one to ten, you're a ten as far as God is concerned. You are accepted in the beloved, not 99. Or you're 100% accepted by God. That identity, that understanding of who you are. God has declared you righteous. Like Johnny Lingo declared, you're a tin cow woman. And then through that relationship with Johnny Lingo, she became who she was declared to be. And that's the goal of reconciliation, to become the person that God has declared us to be. This is one of my oldest stories. I tell this. I, I mean, I, I, I've changed the story a little bit because I, some, some versions will say eight cow. They're all wrong. I've been telling this for 30 years. I'm, you know, this is, this is, the, this is the right version. <laughs> but uh, Jana Gillespie, I don't know if you remember Jana and Damon, uh, if, if John and Adina were here today, they're, they're, they're going on a little vacation. This is John and Adina's daughter-in-law. Jana was a drama teacher uh, at uh, Ventura County Christian High School, and she set up uh, 10 Cal Productions. After she heard this story, she started 10 Cal Productions, and they begin to produce all of those things. Listen, you're a 10 Cal man. You're, I, I mean, you're a 10 Cal woman. You're, you are accepted fully by God, by his grace. Now, this cross is where God, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he declares us righteous. Justification, we trust him. And then reconciliation is where, justification is where we embrace the cross and reconciliation is where Jesus just embraces us. And we're one, at one with him. Nothing's going to separate us from that love. 